This podcast comes to you from the Plant Biosecurity Research Initiative. For more information on PBRI, visit www.pbri.com.au. Fall armyworm, as far as it can be confirmed, has been in Australia now for a number of months and scientists and agronomists and growers across the northern parts of the continent are still on a very steep learning curve. Hello, I'm Chris Brown. I hope you've been able to have a listen to several other podcasts in which I've spoken to researchers both in the US and in South Africa, kind of like an introduction to the pest to gauge its importance in other parts of the world. There's lots of good information in those podcasts, so check them out if you have time. But today I'm talking to some homegrown entomologists, Melina Miles and Paul Grundy. Melina is with DAF Queensland and her job title is Principal Entomologist and Team Leader in Grains. Paul is also with DAF Queensland and is a Principal Research Scientist in Crop Protection and Farming Systems with a focus on cotton. Melina, if I can start with you, where is fall armyworm likely to find its home in Australia? 52 weeks of the year. Well, I guess if it behaves as it has in other countries where it has turned up and in, I guess, North and South America where its uh, sort of native range is, it will be largely a tropical and subtropical pest. Those are the, the sort of regions where we expect it to persist year round and other areas, so more temperate areas south of the tropics, will probably be subjected to periodic influxes, either major or minor, depending on seasonal conditions. Seasonal conditions, is that in terms of air temperature? Probably more so in terms of the potential for build-up in those tropical and subtropical areas, the number of generations, so a combination of temperature and host availability that enables those populations to build up. And it's probably only when there are significant populations and conducive wind systems, meteorological systems, that we will see major movements out of those tropical and subtropical areas. And I suppose it will also come down to, if, is there anything to eat further south? Yeah, well, certainly that will play into what happens once it arrives in more southerly regions. It'll be a combination of suitable hosts and climatic conditions that enable it to survive. So if it's something, if it does something similar to what it does in North America, which is move, in that case, it moves north, but in our case, moves south at the end of summer, sort of in autumn, then the window for survival and persistence in crops is probably quite limited. Things like winter cereals, you would think would potentially make quite good hosts, being grasses, but the opportunity for the fall armyworm to persist under the, you know, the temperature regimes that exist through autumn and into winter in those regions is probably quite limiting. Paul, you have done some travelling up around the north, perhaps not just recently, but how are they faring up in the Northern Territory and the Ord? Chris, look, been fortunate to get up to North Queensland twice, once in March and again in June. And the purpose of those visits was to look at commercial cotton that's been grown in North Queensland. Also involved in work with cotton being produced in the Northern Territory in Western Australia, but COVID-19 has pretty much prevented our travel to those sites since the end of March at least. What we've seen in North Queensland, and we've purposely gone and looked at those cotton crops growing in that area, is we haven't actually found very much evidence of fall armyworm affecting those crops at all. We've conducted fairly specific sampling in unsprayed non-BT cotton that's planted as part of those crops. So for growers that are growing Bolgard 3 cotton, they need to also grow an area of either pigeon pea or unsprayed non-BT cotton. And you would expect 
that those areas, they're not treated for caterpillars, they don't have expressing BT, that if fall armyworm was going to be present in cotton, those would be the areas where you would expect to see them. What we found in those areas was really high abundance of Helicoverpera armigera, plenty of our endemic Spidoptera species, Spidoptera latura, in quite high numbers, but we haven't seen any evidence at all of fall armyworm being in those refuge areas in North Queensland, despite fall armyworm being very prevalent in nearby maize crops next to those cotton crops. In talking with our collaborators in the Northern Territory and also in the Ord, they've been keeping a keen eye out for fall armyworm again in those cotton crops and particularly in those refuges where you would expect to see the presence of fall armyworm first. And they haven't found a single fall armyworm in those crops yet either. So it's still very early days with this pest being in Australia, but it would seem at this stage that compared to other crops, at least in the area, and certainly it's good fall armyworm numbers in both the Territory and WA turning up in sorghum and corn, that the fact that we're not seeing them in cotton is suggesting that the strain we have at least has not showing a large preference for cotton at this early stage. That is good news. Were you mildly surprised by that? Yeah, it was certainly surprising. Like I sort of expected when we looked at those refuges to find fall armyworm. You know, some of the literature from overseas, particularly in the US, suggests that cotton might be a host. So it's certainly encouraging at this early stage that we haven't just seen no evidence of all for those fall armyworm being there, despite nearby corn having really good numbers. I understand in Texas, the fall armyworm attacks the fruit of the cotton. So you didn't have any evidence of that at that time of the season? No, look, not at all. So the, each of these crops at both during each survey interval have been actively flowering and setting bowls. And so, you know, you would expect from that literature that that's, you know, the crops certainly at a stage where it would be very attractive to fall armyworm. And again, just, just no evidence of their activity in cotton so far during this first season. So, Melina, as Paul mentioned, the main damage so far seems to be in sorghum and maize or sweet corn. Is that the case? Is that the extent so far? That is, in terms of potential economic loss or populations causing the sort of damage that growers and agronomists have considered required treatment, it has for the most part been maize, sorghum to a lesser extent, and definitely sweet corn. There has been some observation of fall armyworm in both soybeans and chickpeas in the burdekin, but those crops on subsequent inspection have just shown that there was minor defoliation and that those populations didn't persist. How extensive was the damage? Have the guys been able to get on top of it? Well, I guess it's been very much a learning thing, Chris, of course, and we know when fall armyworm first turned up in maize crops on the Atherton Tablelands that there was a lot of spraying going on, I guess, as a result of you know the, just the, the complete lack of information about when they needed to control and an assumption that you know these things were going to be absolutely devastating, as the media was suggesting. So there was a lot of spraying that was probably not well targeted and particularly targeted at large larvae that had taken up residence in the world and quite protected by a plug of frass and so on. And, and very unlikely when you, you sort of sat back and thought about it, very unlikely to be effectively controlled. So as we've gone along and people, you know, sort of understand that this is one of the features and understand how to detect both eggs and larvae in the crop earlier and that understanding that, you know, perhaps there's a need to control them before they get into the world and you can't get chemical to them. 
certainly the response and the targeting has become much better. And I was talking to one of the agronomists from the Burdekin this morning and, you know, the the change in his attitude between May and and now has been quite dramatic as they've had much more experience both with the amount of damage that's caused and their experience with effectively controlling them when they need to. Well, let's talk about the control in more depth. And I suppose uh, the first thing you have to know is whether you've got them or not and properly identify them. Are pheromone traps the way to go there? Well, certainly pheromone traps are being used as a way of determining where the fall armyworm are active in different regions. And an initial understanding of where fall armyworm is, in Queensland at least, there's a network of traps that stretches from the border to North Queensland. And it's providing reasonable indications of where there is some activity. So the distribution is quite wide. There haven't yet been surveys of all those areas where there have been moth detections to determine whether there are infestations of larvae corresponding or resulting from those movements of moths. So we are a little bit hamstrung at, the, at this point in understanding fully what the distribution is or the the risk to crops and pastures and so on. But pheromone traps are, they seem to be quite reliable in terms of capturing the peaks and troughs of fall armyworm activity in those coastal areas, the Burdick and Bowen, where they have been used for quite some time. Paul, with your knowledge of the Northern Territory and Western Australia, I know you're not from there, but are they using pheromone traps up there as well? Yeah, Chris, look, pheromone traps are certainly being used in each of those areas. Although it's interesting, the first detection of fall armyworm in the Ord was actually in some strips of corn that were planted as a sort of distraction for the local wallaby population with our cotton trials. There was traps out in that environment, but also, again, the collaborator that we're working with sort of said, you know, keep an eye on that corn because the chances are a fall armyworm, when they turn up, you'll see them in there first. And that indeed certainly was the case. But certainly a, a grid of pheromone traps right across the north now being managed by each agency within those areas. And yeah, as Melina mentioned, yielding quite useful information in terms of the spread so far of this particular insect. Melina, in South Africa, they had some initial trouble with pheromone traps because they were too general and they were attracting other species of moths. Is that not the case here in Australia? Oh, that is absolutely the case, Chris, and it's the bane of any pheromone trap operator's life at the moment. There's a species commonly called false armyworm, Lucania laurii, which is around in absolutely major numbers and is very attracted to the pheromone that is being widely used through throughout Queensland, the one that DAF is deploying currently. And the ratio of fall armyworm to the false armyworm is almost 90 to 1 in the favour of the false armyworm. So it's really crippling in terms of providing growers and agronomists with a tool that they can use themselves on their farm or in their region to reliably tell them what's going on with fall armyworms. So, you know, everywhere that they've deployed these pheromones for fall armyworm around the world, so Africa has had a similar issue as has the US to some extent in the early days, they've had to find a lure that actually cuts back considerably on on the bycatch and we hope that we can take some leads from the experience in the other countries to find ourselves a lure that catches pretty much just fall armyworm. Yeah well I think they've managed to do that in South Africa so that's good news for them. Let's talk about the identification then okay the pheromone traps trap the moth but it's really the caterpillar that we're after and you mentioned earlier Melina that the caterpillar when it's at a a very small uh, I think below three instar goes into the whirl 
and is really, really hard to control. So I imagine that growers would be looking to control this fall armyworm before that happens so that chemicals that they use are effective. Yeah, that seems to be a major challenge, Chris. And I think, you know, the overseas experience has been that once they're entrenched in the world, there is very little point in targeting them that you either have to just sort of live with that damage or wait for those larvae to emerge as the crop comes either into head or into tassel in the case of maize. And the challenge is, you know, with many of these crops, they haven't had to be scouted in that vegetative stage. So scouting sorghum and maize, for example, in the vegetative stage will be something new for growers and agronomists. We know that we get native armyworm species and helicoverpa in those crops, but the amount of damage that they do is inconsequential. So there are a couple of things that are happening. One is, you know, just getting used to getting out there, but also, you know, we are a little bit constrained in terms of being able to make good decisions by knowing how many eggs or how many larvae per metre of row or per plant actually warrant some treatment. So that's one of the really high priorities for industry is to understand what the relationship is between the number of eggs or early instar larvae you see and the likely impact in terms of yield loss or impacts on growth. So yeah, I think that the experience overseas will be replicated here in that you are looking to to detect and target those larvae before they get to a stage where they get into the world and are entrenched. Well, just uh, as a little plug for earlier podcasts that I've done, I've recorded podcasts, a couple of podcasts with people, scientists in uh, the US and one with uh, someone in South Africa, and they've got a wealth of knowledge that they've passed on in those uh, podcasts, and in particular around the control. And the scouting, as you say, it's a, the scouting is a, is a very American term, isn't it, Valina? But it, it actually really well describes what growers have to do. So you're saying that really from the get-go after planting sorghum and maize and sweet corn people should be out there looking at their crops on a regular basis how regular well in this early stage while we're finding our way and trying to you know establish a better understanding of the relationship between pest pressure that might be indicated by pheromone traps the susceptibility of the crop whether it you know there might be some varietal differences that become apparent between varieties you know a whole lot of factors but I think that the most important thing for a sorghum grower, for example, is for them to be well aware that they need to be checking their vegetative sorghum, not just wandering out to make an assessment as the heads are emerging. And one of the other things that's going to be incredibly important in Australia is that we know that we have other species that are there that don't cause damage. So I already mentioned native armyworm species and helicoverpa. And it will be absolutely imperative that people are able to adequately distinguish between those species that don't require treatment. And I guess we could also include Spodoptera latura, the cluster caterpillar from time to time, and depending on where you are. But it's absolutely important that they can effectively distinguish fall armyworm, which may require treatment, and these other species that just simply don't cause enough economic loss to warrant control because an inability to distinguish those different species will result in treatment when it's not needed or failing to detect fall armyworm and not treat when it is needed. So there's a lot of learning for both the researchers understanding those relationships but also communicating and helping growers and agronomists to do that effectively themselves. Paul, can I just ask you, when it comes to cotton and the BT cotton, the Volgar 3, does that control attack by most of the caterpillars that are around that have previously been attacking cotton? Yeah, look, Chris, certainly in the Australian context, Bolgard 3 cotton has those three BT proteins that are expressed and it does a really good job 
at controlling our key species being Helicoverpera midgera and Punctidra and also rough bollworms. But the one sort of gap, I guess, that we see in northern Australia is ironically our endemic Spidoptera species, Spidoptera latura, does have the ability to survive Olgard 3 cotton. Now, when I use the word survive, we're not seeing large numbers of this pest, but this particular species is, if you like, inherently tolerant of those Bt proteins. And what we find in northern Australia from time to time, crops growing in a fairly challenging environment. So we plant a lot of these crops during the month of February. So at the tail end of the wet season, those crops at that time of year can still be exposed to a large amount of cloudiness or hot night temperatures or basically conditions that would put the crop under a degree of stress and interfere with photosynthesis. And what we've found is that it also can interfere with the level of expression of those proteins that would normally be present. And what we find that if you get a dip in that expression, which you know, that's not a new thing for people that are growing Bolgard 3, people have experienced that elsewhere in Australia. But if that dip in expression coincides with an egg lay from Spidoptera latura, and those larvae get a bit of a head start in their development and they make it through those first very early instars, they'll then persist in that crop and they can actually move around and they get quite good at feeding on flowers and parts of the plant that don't express Bt protein. And we've had instances right across northern Australia now, pretty much over the last decade, where cotton's been grown either for research purposes or commercially, where growers have actually needed to control our endemic Spidoptera species, Spidoptera latura. So we have our own homegrown one that is reasonably yeah. tolerant of BT. The Bulgar, to put into perspective, it's probably taking out 99% of those caterpillars that are there. So don't want listeners to sort of feel that crops are being overrun by that species. But it is interesting that our own endemic Spidoptera species is inherently tolerant of those proteins. Melina, we've talked about what fall armyworm is attacking in our northern climes, but we haven't talked about what it's not attacking apart from cotton, which is great news. But when it comes to vegetables, has there been any activity there at all? Not to my knowledge, Chris. And one of the really big sort of blind spots in that whole thing has been the ability to find a lot of literature on the impacts of fall armyworm on vegetables overseas. You know, you might on the to one extent think that, well, that's probably pretty indicative then that it's not an issue. But we do know that there are a small number of crops that are susceptible. But I think even in those sort of bow and burdekin areas where we would expect that there's quite a bit of horticultural production, as far as I'm aware, there have not been reports of fall armyworm causing significant loss there. One of the things to keep in mind, of course, is with vegetable production in particular, they already have a fairly rigorous insecticide regime to control a whole suite of pests that they're dealing with prior to fall armyworm turning up. And it's likely that, you know, fall armyworm would be incidentally controlled, which might be why we're not really seeing reports of major impacts at this point. I do recall our South African guest on an earlier podcast saying that they couldn't get the fall armyworm to oviposit on vegetables. That might be a clue as well. Yeah, and I think the other thing to keep in mind is that when I look at the sort of thresholds that the Americans have for fall armyworm in sorghum or maize, for example, they are significantly higher in terms of the numbers per plant that they have for their thresholds than the densities that we're experiencing 
to this point. So that's the other thing to keep in mind, that it's it's relatively early days in terms of fall armyworm population development in Australia. And we haven't seen a full year that enables the populations to build up, to go through the maximum number of generations that they might. And we might start to see some of these sort of relationships between crops and fall armyworm change as the densities increase or in, in seasons or locations where you might have an explosion of fall armyworm for you know, whatever reason. So that whilst we kind of look at what we've seen over the last seven months and try to project that forward, I think that we haven't seen the full range of what we might with fall armyworm yet. That's a very, very important point, Melina. So let me just go back just to clarify what you're saying. Basically, we don't have the density of fall armyworm here yet that is present, say, in the Americas. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying, that the thresholds for control, you know, the trigger points for controlling fall armyworm in crops like sorghum are significantly higher than the sort of densities that we've experienced to date in sorghum. So it it sort of indicates that potentially we've got a long way to go. Whether we actually see those sorts of populations in Australia is unclear. It does depend on how many generations largely we can get of fall armyworm in different areas. But even if you look at the climax modelling that's been done so far, you can see that the intensity, the likely intensity or the predicted intensity of fall armyworm in Australia, even in those tropical and subtropical regions, is much less than it is in some of these real hot spots around the world like Africa and and South America. So, you know, I think there's a heads up there that potentially this is not going to be a really major issue like it is in those other areas. You mentioned earlier that when Fall Army first came to Australia, people were just out there to uh, or kill it, get rid of it as quickly as possible and using chemicals to do that. What is the risk of resistance occurring that's going to cause wider problems for Australian growers? Well, the risk of insecticide resistance developing not only in fall armyworm with an increased frequency of treatment in crops like sorghum and maize, for example, which I guess to this point have had fairly little insecticide used in them, is that not only does it expose fall armyworm to the risk of insecticide resistance development, but it also will incidentally expose other pests like Helicoverpera midra to those additional insecticide applications. And, you know, to my mind, the risks to Helicoverpera are probably much more significant across all the industries than they ever will be for fall armyworm. It would be inconvenient at the least and, you know, a major problem at the most if fall armyworm became quite resistant to insecticides. But I think if we were to see resistance in Helicoverpa to some of those newer products, particularly the diamides and so on, that would be across Australia a, a much more significant problem. And, you know, that's one of the things that we've been really boring people to death with in our communications is that we need to be thinking about what else is there, not just thinking that fall armyworm is the problem and the focus of all our attention. The benefit of, of what industries have done in terms of getting permits for a wide range of products is that the potential to rotate to limit the number of selection episodes for with the same product is pretty good. So, you know, there are lots of tools that should enable industries to limit the selection pressure for particular groups. And I'm optimistic with some support and recognition of this major problem that the industries will respond and we won't find ourselves in a really difficult place with insecticide resistance in not only fall armyworm, but potentially Helicoverpera armidra as well. 
Paul, this is a question for both you and Melina in terms of predators to fall armyworm. Has there been any significant evidence that it's high on the diet of any predators in Australia? Yeah, look, Chris, it's still early days, but I guess in when Melina and I travelled to North Queensland earlier this year and to get a handle on you know what fall armyworm looked like, where was it turning up, what was it eating, it was really encouraging to see a number of our natural enemies that would normally prey on our endemic species of armyworm and also Helicoverpa species, both armidra and punctigera, that a number of those parasitoids and predators were also there present and feeding on fall armyworm larvae which was quite encouraging when you consider at that point in March that fall armyworm had been part of that local landscape for barely a couple of months and yet those natural enemies that many agronomists would be familiar with microplitis species some of our tachinids and some of our usual predators such as our spined predatory shield bugs and Spiders, there's usual things that are feeding on our other key caterpillar pests were very much present and very much feeding on fall armyworms. So again, the pest status of this particular species, at the end of the day when it's had time to establish and it finds whatever its rhythm is, that pattern of occurrence is going to be very much a function of the temperatures that Molina mentioned earlier on, but also vegetation at a landscape level. Our vegetation is very different to South America, Northern Australia, whilst the temperatures might be very warm for a good six months of the year, it's also very, very dry with very little in the way of host material. And we've got a complex of natural enemies that are very well adapted to these caterpillar species that will also be taking out numbers over time as well. But yeah, very encouraging to see a wide range of natural enemies feeding on them, given they've been new to the scene very recently. Melina, in the conversations that I had with people in the US and in South Africa, those natural enemies certainly were playing their part, but not a significant part. I got the impression that uh, they just weren't that really important over there. Do you think they'll be more important here, as Paul was saying? I think they will. And I think one of the things that promotes natural enemies as a key part of the management of, of Lepidoptera is that people are very familiar with parasitoids of or and, and the predators, so the natural enemies of Helicoverpa. That's been something that has been part of Helicoverpa management, looking for parasitoids of eggs, looking for those predators, keeping in mind the, the relative abundance of natural enemies and of the pest of concern so that included in decisions about whether chemical control is required is the likely activity and impact of the natural enemies and the impact of any chemical treatment on the natural enemies because people are well aware that you know you really do get benefit from preserving natural enemies in the crop so you know that's when i mentioned some of the pressure that might come onto these chemicals that are available for both helicoverpa and fall armyworm now. It really is those chemicals that are very selective that will kill the caterpillars but not these natural enemies that I'm most concerned about because they are the ones that fit really nicely into an approach that does capture the contribution that natural enemies will make. So I'm really optimistic that this will carry through and I think in crops like sweet corn where if they were just relying on insecticides they would be spraying constantly and and potentially, you know, really driving that insecticide resistance development, natural enemies will be a, an absolutely critical part of their consideration to just reduce their reliance on insecticides and, and the problems that come with that. So, yeah, look, they definitely will be a really important part of the conversation. One area that we haven't talked about is the impact that fall armyworm could potentially have on 
pasture. I was absolutely gobsmacked when I was talking to David Kearns from Texas when he said that sometimes at different times millions of acres of pasture land was just eaten out by fall armyworm. Is there a potential for that to occur in the Northern Territory or in Northern Western Australia, Melina, indeed in Queensland? Well, I think what sort of seems to be forgotten in the conversation about fall armyworm is that we have a whole suite of armyworm species, native armyworm species, that do exactly that from time to time. And, you know, this year, 2020, has been a year where we have seen extraordinary numbers of native armyworm species, so the methymna and the persictania and so on, because it's it's post-drought. So those are seasons when you tend to get big outbreaks of native armyworm species. And we know historically that we see big outbreaks of something like day-feeding armyworm is probably the most recent one back in the sort of mid-2000s that took out hundreds and probably you know thousands of hectares of buffalo pasture. So graziers are used to these events. It's hard to imagine that fall armyworm will cause more loss than a suite of endemic species. And I think that it really, like Paul said earlier, you know, we really do need to watch for, for a period of time to see where fall armyworm settles, what are the triggers that drive outbreaks that might cause unusual damage or, or more significant damage than we're used to. And pastures is exactly one of those situations. We don't know at this point of our native pastures and our sown pastures which species might be susceptible and whether indeed fall armyworm might select them over crops or whether they you know can go on and survive so there are lots and lots of questions about pastures yeah i think i was surprised also to hear that in the states they do attempt to control those sorts of outbreaks over very large areas i think that would be quite a challenge for our grazing industries and i think we just need to discuss the impact on pasture in the context of what we already know and how we manage endemic armyworm outbreaks currently. Mm, Yeah, yeah, absolutely true. And uh, indeed, that sentiment came through talking to some scientists in America where they said, look, just settle back and watch and see what's going to happen rather than sort of rushing in too quickly, I suppose. We're coming near the end now, Melina, and I just wanted to come back to the identification of fall armyworm. Now, there's lots of really good information out there that identifies fall armyworm as a mature, like a six-inch star caterpillar. They're relatively easy, I suppose, to identify at that six-inch star stage. But if they need to be identified before they enter the world, so before they get up to three-inch star, how are growers going to do that? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, this is a, a something that gets discussed quite a bit. And, and, you know, Paul probably can throw his two bobs worth. We've contemplated this together, what we can do to, to help agronomists and growers better make those decisions. And probably the best description of how that might be done has probably come from Brent Wilson, who's an agronomist in North Queensland, who was one of the first to find it in a maize crop and have to manage it. And, you know, his advice to other agronomists has been that, you know, his confidence around early identification has grown as a result of collecting lots of small larvae or egg masses and then growing them through, giving them leaf material to feed in a container and watching so that, you know, he gets that correlation or he gets that continuum from eggs to small larvae to larger larvae so that 
over time he's kind of built his experience on those observations. And there's a lot, you know, there's a lot about the way a larva moves, where it is on the crop, where the eggs are put, things like that, little clues that, you know, you don't necessarily communicate in a little booklet with pictures of larvae that really make a difference in terms of distinguishing between the different caterpillars. And I think Brent captured that really well in his description of how he is just every time he's unsure about a larva that he sees that's too small to sort of see the features on, he'll put it in a jar with some leaf material and grow it through and and sort of refine his ability to do that. Yeah, Paul, what do you think might be the way forward? Look, I think you've sort of summed that up pretty well. I guess sort of one of the things that I've learned from fall armyworm and, and trying to identify them myself and a number of consultants that I've spoken to that have had suspect larvae is first and foremost, we've never really had to think that hard about what it is that we're looking at. That really comes to the fore because Helicoverpera armigera in particular and also punctigera during those early instars does look very, very similar to fall armyworm. And I've puzzled over larvae when they're quite small and a lot of agronomists have brought in larvae or sent photos. And prior to that, when you weren't trying to worry about whether it was fall armyworm or not, we probably just looked at these caterpillars and went to Helicoverpa and then got on with managing them. So there's certainly a difficulty there, but I'd probably concur very much with Melina. I know those trips to North Queensland, once you start seeing this pest in those maize crops, it is those combination of things that you look at characteristics of the way they move, where they are on the plant, what sort of damage they're doing, that kind of allow you to put that picture together. But certainly for new agronomists or agronomists that are seeing fall armyworms, probably the better way to put it for the first time. And when you might be detecting, you know, just one here and maybe just one there. Yeah, look, they are a real challenge to identify when they're little. And, you know, that bit of advice about putting it in a container and giving it whatever it was feeding on Um, a food source to grow that little bit larger can certainly help to answer those questions. But yeah, look, if nothing else, it's demonstrated to me that we haven't really had a need to look very closely at larvae previously, and that certainly now changes with fall armyworm being on the scene. Melina Miles and Paul Grundy from DAF in Queensland. My name is Chris Brown, and if you want to know more about fall armyworm, both here and around the world, then check out the other podcasts in this series. This podcast was brought to you by the Plant Biosecurity Research Initiative, an initiative of the following R&D organisations. Cotton Research and Development Corporation, Forest and Wood Products Australia, Grains Research and Development Corporation, Horticulture Innovation Australia, Agrifutures Australia, Sugar Research Australia, Wine Australia and Plant Health Australia.